thank you, everybody. And thank you very much, Joel, and to all the staff and directors here at the Brooklyn Public Library for our third appearance this august institution. So the review panel. Is anybody a guest here at the review, review panel for the first time? Marvellous. Excellent. Well, for your benefit, then, and uh, to rem refresh the memories of the rest of us, a quick rundown on what we're doing. We've all been to see five exhibitions of four artists around New York City, Brooklyn and New York, Manhattan. And we are going to show little PowerPoints of the shows just to refresh our memory of what we're um, talking about. Then the panel discusses them, the first two of those shows in uh, among themselves. Then there's a chance for the audience to let off steam. And then we repeat the exercise. Simplicity itself. And yet, how often does one really get to see into the minds of uh, four critics at once to see what they really think about current art exhibitions. <laughs> Very distinguished panel here this evening. Guests, two of whom are um, uh, returnees and one novice. Um, <laughs> that's her. So let me introduce my guests uh, from your far left, um, geographically. Uh, Lance Esplund is a writer at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Lance and I have known each other forever. Uh, we were writers together in Modern Painters several owners ago. And uh, we were colleagues also on the New York Sun. And um, in the interim, uh, Lance has uh, also written for Bloomberg News, and he's working on a book uh, for basic books, How to Look at Modern and Contemporary Art. So hopefully he'll either share some of that wisdom this evening or get some ideas for it from, um, from his colleagues and this audience. Cara Rooney is a visual arts editor at the Brooklyn Rail, and she, besides her writing, is a distinguished artist uh, seen but a stone's throw from this building recently in a two-person show with Ruth Hardinger at Five Miles Gallery and um, often seen in, in group exhibitions. She also has a performance coming up uh, early summer at uh, F Peter Friedman Inc. in Soho. No, Friedman Gallery in Soho. I beg your pardon, Friedman Gallery in Soho. Right. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Friedman with a D, yes? Yes. Yes. Vital distinction. Good. Thank you for the correction. Sorry for the error. And <laughs> Robert Storr uh, is the dean of the School of Art at Yale. Um, he's in his last year, no doubt to his relief and to the... Um <laughs> <laughs> but to the said it better. But <laughs> to the chagrin <laughs> of... Uh, of his uh, beloved students. Uh, before that position, uh, Rob, of course, was for many years um, a curator <coughs> in the Department of Painting and Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, as well as, later, latterly, um, a professor at uh, New York University's Institute of Fine Arts, 
Um, and he's also a painter. And he's also to be congratulated for something that I'm going to be very immodest about here and point out that last month we had a guest on this panel here, Laurie Frederick. Uh, last week in Philadelphia, at the Review Panel Philadelphia, uh, I had a guest, Eileen Neff, on the stage. And um, today we have Rob Storr on the stage. And what do those three individuals have in common? They're all recipients this year of a fellowship from the John S. Guggenheim Foundation. So if you are hoping to get a Guggenheim and you're invited to be on the review panel, don't say no. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. I should have mentioned that uh, while the, the Omer Fast exhibition actually is uh, is, it consists of, as you saw, from stills, uh, three films. Um, we, we actually had the advantage of a, a trailer for the 59-minute <coughs> long film by Molly Lowe showing at uh, Pioneer Works. And we didn't um, orchestrate uh, clips uh, for the Omer Fast, but in a, in a way, actually, the, the trailer for Lowe um, gives a fair representation, as best, as best a trailer can, for um, her production, um, which we'll be discussing in a little while. Um, Omer Fast, it's just Im impossible almost to imagine a trailer that could begin to represent that experience um, because it somehow would imply um, that um, that there is some some narrative structure that could be approximated that could be that one could be drawn in somehow and yet at the, s at the, at the, at the same time as saying that one has the interesting phenomenon with seeing video in a gallery when we have, with the fast, three um, such, uh, I'll, I'll be judgmental and say such, such powerful and absorbing uh, dramas, uh, but one has the experience that one doesn't hopefully get in a movie house of just dropping in on them. I mean, it's pretty impossible considering the, the duration of those three films uh, to time your day. I mean, it's not impossible, but you'd have, have to do some very concerted, serious timing to say, okay, I'm going to get to James Cohan in time for uh, the first film at this time, and then I'll go and do something else and come back for the second film at this time. The reality is we, we drift in and out, and um, that's a strange phenomenon, is it not, in, in movies that both have and, and at the same time subvert narrative structure. Um, Rob, how, how would you say the experience of discontinuity in his films compares with the analogous discontinuities of seeing them in a gallery setting? Um, I'm not exactly sure I can answer that directly, but I would say that, I mean, I've seen two of these several times, and one of them, the, um, the one about the, the spring, is the first one I saw, I mean, this is the first one I saw the first time. Um, and I'm 
bothered by these films a great deal, but I'm not sure whether that's just me or whether it's in the nature of what he's doing. Because the repetitions and the uh, the emphasis on the the, uh, the shifting of the cast as certain scenes are replayed and so on and so forth is part of what they're about, but it is also, I find, very annoying, frankly. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I find that there's something so strong about some of the images and something so intense about some of the situations he's describing, I wonder why he layers this extra sort of, I think, kind of mannerist, postmodern uh, level to it. It seems unnecessary. I think the one that's about, uh, about uh, the distance uh, for um, you know, drone attacks is the least cluttered. And there are discontinuities in that one too, but that has to do with the the, the dysfunction of the man whose story it is. I mean, obviously he's he's got PTSD. He's coming in and out of clarity about what he's doing and where he's done it and why he's doing it and so on and so forth. But I, I found I found uh, the the one with the returning son. Um, I don't know too many subplots, too many things going on, and and to the detriment of what was good about it. Hmm. Hmm. Did you have a similar? Dislocation, Lance, was there? I was all over the map with these videos. Um, I think the, the precedent for them is Kurosawa's Rashomon. And the way in which they, um, which is a story, I don't know, are, have all of you seen Rashomon? Um, but, you know, it's a, a story about a murder, suicide, perhaps, um, rape, uh, done in 1950, and um, theft, you know, but... It's told, the story is told from numerous points of view. And I kept thinking of Rashomon with all of these films and how they were layering that information. I think Rashomon is a much greater and more successful um, work of art and a complete work of art in that way. I do share Rob's feeling that there's a kind of disconnection that happens. I think it can be like a device um, that sometimes I'm very aware of. But I was also struck, I think, when I was allowed myself to get beyond it, that I, I, I wrote it, you know, and I, one of the things, I actually rewatched Rashomon today because, you know, why not, right? And um, so, because I was thinking about it, and one of the things that happens in Rashomon that also happens in the Faust films is that I forgot whose narrative it was. Like, I forgot... I, in fact, I spring and continuity, spring is the somewhat not sequel because there's no such thing as a sequel in these because they dislocate time so much But and narrative. But the layering actually, I was able to ride it a little bit. I think he kind of throws you into a sea of, oh, then this happened. And I think there was a combination of, of like fantasy, memory, narrative, different viewpoints one of the devices that really bugged me at times was the separate screens. Um, mm -hmm. If you're looking at this, any, any of the pieces of black are not there. There's there one, two, three, four, like five separate rectangles here. So it's a stacked kind of situation. And at times I really was annoyed by it. At other times I liked the fact that somebody became a voyeur, somebody became a viewer, you had more than one viewpoint. So, you know, I kind of went in and out of the device of it. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of like Thomas Crown Affair and the Czech Exactly, films, Thomas Czech Crown. Films on exactly. which it was based. Mm. Yeah. And, it, and, and in Thomas Crown Affair, it sort of works. Yeah. And it's hard to take your eyes off of, uh, what's his name, the actor, uh, Steve McQueen. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, he's, he, he, he animates, but this, this, it seems to me, is okay. 
It's okay. I, I thought of all the three, this is the one I actually liked the most. Um, this yeah, one, yeah. yeah. But I, I just wonder why he feels compelled to do this. I, I don't think that uh, black box video is necessarily the best circumstance in which to play these games because holding an audience in a theater and then treating the screen as this you know, shuffleboard is different than walking into a real space with real people with a present screen that is subdivided. It's just, I don't know, it's odd. Might there be, Kara, uh, some, some sense of a medieval altarpiece in the, the multi-channeled um, screen? <coughs> I, I certainly hadn't made that connection. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think for me, it, it's interesting, um, Rob, that you say this latest film is your favorite because it's my least. Um, I actually felt as though with continuity, he had, he had essentially told the story he wanted to tell, and I'm not really certain as to why he felt the need to revisit the subject matter, the same characters. In a way, I feel like he let too much out of the bag in terms of the narrative structure that um, comprised the second film. And the it's best we, they're just there for decoration. That's not, that you don't have to look at them. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I felt like he actually if he was going to use the split channel format, he didn't push it far enough, that he could have really um, amped up the discontinuity of the third film even more so than he did. Um, that's just a personal opinion, but. I, mean, I will say this, th that he made me think about the following, okay. If um, Homecoming is essentially about the parents trying to get used to their son after he's been to war, and if that's, if you will, a prosaic narrative, the idea that there's a, another story, which is basically a series of really complicated incestuous edible dramas going yes. on simultaneously, that's an interesting proposition, but I don't think he pulls it off. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. No, he keeps upping the ante, but never yeah. quite being in the yeah. game, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. So a little bit of a tease, uh, too much of a tease then, or, or just, his own, uh, just a confusion in, in too many possible subplots to explore? I don't know, I still, you know, I still, he still carried me occasionally, mm. not, it didn't, never added up for me, but still, just seeing the three films together, mm -hmm. I was able to ride it out, so to speak. Um, I, uh, the I, one I would pose the question, oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, the one thing I did think was interesting is that the first film, I believe, is premiered in 2011, it's from 2011. Yes. And I think we have this very different relationship to war, to the subtleties of war, to how it's actually enacted. Um, uh, there's more clarity around the idea that we don't actually know what's happening. And so the stories seemed to me to devolve in the same kind of way where, you know, uh, the 2011 piece is relatively clear cut in terms of these, the drone strikes, the PTSD, the, you know, what's actually happening on the ground as a result of these maneuvers and as we kind of move forward in, in the trilogy, those lines become more and more muddied. Um, and I, I've read that as analogous to our experience with what's actually happening in real time now in terms of our engagements overseas. So for me, that aspect of it was successful. But and, and the man who plays the, the, the drone pilot mm -hmm. is really compelling, he's really good. <coughs> and when he challenges his shrink interrogator, whatever it is, to say, you know, what you really want to know is what's the difference between what I do and what a guy in an actual airplane does. I think that that's a real question because I think mm -hmm. these kinds of uh, deformations, psychological deformations, do occur to people who are not in physical danger. Mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. what they're doing is horrible wherever they may be sitting. Right. And if they're, you know, 
thousands and thousands of feet in the air, the chances of being shot down are pretty small anyway, so mm -hmm. the difference between a drone and a plane is pretty small, but the, the horror of being that person dropping bombs on people from a distance. And he's in Las Vegas, isn't yeah. he? That's right. Yeah. I, I was reminded of uh, the scene in The Best Years of Our Lives, which is this wonderful post-war movie about uh, some people coming back from the Second World War and their different difficulties in acclimating to, to civilian life. But the first shots are they're coming in over an American city in the belly of a military plane, and you're watching them discover America all over again, and then you realize that they're discovering it exactly through the windows that they would have been looking had they been flying over their targets on the other side of the world during the field of act, you know, during the, in the theater of battle. And that was a really clever way of doing the flip. You know, mm -hmm. where, where you, you see war through the eyes of the warrior, even though you're also seeing home through the eyes of somebody coming home. Mm -hmm. the, the drone film is the one that's, I think, most directly about war. Because, in fact, the one of the possible ambiguities that um, emerges both in spring and continuity <coughs> Is, is the possibility, in fact, that there was never a son who went off to war. Um, um, and what, what it only... Um, what would have, I think, been really rather uh, striking and, and uh, unnerving and disconcerting in... Uh, if, we, if I was seeing this film the way you're looking at us now, in a, uh, you know, a focused situation with a beginning and an end, is that... Um, is the is is this changing cast of young men who enact uh, the role of the the returning warrior, um, and the the emerging possibility that in fact um, they are uh, well it, it, that perhaps the um, the multi-channel piece uh, provides some clarity or some um, way to read a situation that one then takes to. To, to the to the new film, um, or vice versa, I'm not sure, but that that um, that actually these are kind of um, rent boys who are who are called upon to play the part of the son. Um, so whether one of those actors is an actual son um, within actual within the narrative, or whether they're all in fact. Um, cast in this role is, is, is another matter. Um, but I just return to the, the strangeness of, of seeing it all in, in a gallery and being asked to look at it as sort of moving pictures. That um, uh, Fast, I think, joins uh, a large cast of players uh, who uh, make their mark in the art world as video makers and who segue as quickly as they possibly can and get the funding and the attention together into the mainstream. I think he is now making something for general release and if so he joins in sort of the footsteps of um, McQueen and Julian, uh, not to mention uh, Schnabel and Pictures Generation artists um, before him. Now, no harm in that and, and you know one, one can think of traffic going in the other way in, in the history of cinema with people like uh, Jarman um, going back and forth between art and movie world um, or indeed Vim Vendors having exhibitions of his stills and things. But um, 
one is left wondering if, if the art world was a sort of stopping off point in the way to a bigger, better, happier career somewhere, or, or whether this, this is somebody who's really a crossover person who's, who's making something that works compellingly and exclusively in a, in a gallery situation, um, and his same talent can then be exploited elsewhere. Does that... Uh, Does that take that one? <laughs> okay. Yeah? Um, I don't think it much matters where you start and where you end up. I do think it matters where you are and if you know where you are and if your audience and you have some kind of an understanding of where that is. Mm -hmm. So let's go with Stephen McQueen. Stephen McQueen was an incredible um, video artist who isolated cinematic moments and situations. And he could put great pressure on them and he could make very beautiful images. And uh, I've been watching him since the very beginning. We showed him at projects, I wrote catalogs for him, and so on and so forth. But I have to say, as remarkable a film as it was, I thought that 12 Years a Slave was not successful because he couldn't sustain pictorial narrative. He got hung up on vignettes and sequences and, and he got hung up on himself as a kind mm. of uh, a stylist of a certain type. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that the performances in that film are remarkable. The story is, of course, remarkable. But I didn't, didn't admire the filmmaker admiring himself as much as he does. All right, right. And whereas, uh, whereas in um, the work he made for a gallery setting... Um, Which is to say that all artists have feelings. But I think that, that it's a bigger leap from the 20 or 30 or 40 minute video to the feature-length film than many people understand. Mm. And it is also a different context. When you surrender to a big screen or a little screen, whatever it is, when you surrender to it, it's a different uh, contract between the viewer and the artist than it is in this context where it is a gallery context. Your hyper-awareness of where you are and who you're with is a condition of gallery art, which is not the condition of cinema. Mm -hmm. mm. Right. Which brings us to the hard benches that you have to sit on yes. um, <laughs> in the galleries, uh, which they still haven't figured out. They might as well put nails coming up in them, <laughs> you know. Like it's like, come in and watch it three hours of film and sit on this, you know. Right. Well, I was thinking. I that mean, do penance with no back and. Or on the floor. Or on, the, yeah, I mean. Yeah. I, I was thinking they should do those things that they put in bathtubs, those handles, because I got down on the floor and I couldn't get back up again. I was oh, struggling. Oh, exactly, yeah. And I had my cane and I was, I was looking at like a pathetic old guy yeah. and nobody would help me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were too absorbed in the movie. They, they, they well, would have. I'm sure the that first was film, <laughs> and then you had to do it twice more, which was yeah. adding insult to injury. Well, yeah, when you start thinking about your butt too much, <laughs> you get distracted, you know? I mean, you should have a comfortable chair, yeah. we, you know? Good sound system, comfortable chair. That's what I say. Yeah. I, I would recommend people go and see this show if they haven't. But the advice of the audience of the panel seems to be bring your own chair. Bring one. Of, bring one of these. These are these are. Well, you know those things you wear in airplanes that go around your neck, the puffy things. Yeah. Maybe someone ah. should design something like that sort of baboon butt for you to wear when you go to th uh, to galleries like this. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a rather uh, good segue, I think, to our next exhibition. And. <laughs> Pioneer Works, where um, it seems that Molly Lowe has given some, some careful thought to this exactly this problem by providing us with um, beach recliners, right. um, which are uh, exponentially more uncomfortable than the wooden bench at James Cohan. Um, <laughs> they looked comfortable, they though. They looked fantastic. You throw yourself thought, into them. I thought, oh, yeah. good. Yeah, somebody's, uh, even if I, if I don't like the movie, that's, that's the, yes, here we are. Um, let's... 
Uh, panelists, um, we we don't need to. Let's look at our lovely audience. And our lovely audience, while they're looking at us, can, if they wish, also just get this visual refresher of a looped um, video of, of Molly Lowe's installation at Pioneer Works. Um, astute review panel attendees will notice that of the all of the of all the 400 plus galleries offering exhibitions in Greater New York, we are at uh, this gallery in Red Hook for the second time in three months. Um, um, that's in part because this was a compelling show that we felt we wanted to talk about, and in part because um, our first visit to the this this venue produced a rather uh, uniform disavowal of what they had to offer. So it seemed kind of fair to <laughs> go back and uh, have another go. And I'm rather glad we did, personally. But uh, I, I look forward to seeing what the panelists have to say. So we, we get to see this, uh, we get to see Redwood, the feature that's actually made by Molly Lowe, predominantly and made uh, and post-production and quite a lot of all the interior shots, I think, are actually um, filmed in Pioneer Works. So it's, um, this is an arts complex uh, that also has um, this rather cathedral-like, it's a former ironworks, rather cathedral-like nave for um, um, uh, installations a la the uh, Turbine Hall of Tate Modern. Um, but yeah, those those benches just didn't, do those, those uh, beach recliners didn't do it. And uh, if you did lie back to look at the movie, just at least for somebody of my height, maybe it works for somebody else, but the um, one couldn't actually recline and see at the same time. One had to, <laughs> one would have ended with a very serious crick in the neck if you'd <coughs> followed the uh, directions. But maybe that's part of the pain of the film that the film is trying to convey. Um, <laughs> uh, seating arrangements notwithstanding, uh, Cara, uh, tell us, tell us what we're seeing with Molly Lowe and and how and whether. Um, well, I think I, w I was very interested to see this exhibition and how Molly scaled up these ideas that she's been, um, these sculptural forms that she's been working. Am I cutting out? No. Um, I've been following her work since I saw her commission for the Performa 2013 uh, biennial. And, you know, I really think the most compelling aspect of this show, again, was her sculptural installations. I think she has a wonderful dexterity of skill, the way that she's able to conjure these surreal landscapes and really command the space of Pioneer Works was very impressive. Um, as far as the film goes, I think it was an extremely important work of art for her to make. I think that it had a lot of personal resonance. Um, unfortunately, I was left wanting more from the rather linear narrative. I think that um, she ended up exploring. Um, it, it was a bit, it wasn't disjointed enough for me to really enter into this type of surreal landscape that I that I felt was anticipated by the sculptural objects. Um, you know, in terms of being able to see these things in real time, it really brought the viewer in connection with the film in a way that was, you know, this phenomenological approach, which was really wonderful, where you really understand the tactility of the film and 
um, some of the issues that she's working through in these narratives, this idea of memory and um, downloading her grandmother's memories and recycling these ideas. But um, I think it was a matter of making that jump, like you said, Rob, from these 20 or 30 minute films to a feature length film. And there's a different set of expectations that goes along with that in terms of the audience. Um, and there were just, uh, for myself, there were too many nostalgic overtones for me to really access it as something very fresh and contemporary. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that, uh, that surprises me somewhat. I, I um, um, respect the verdicts, but felt that the, the film had a very good integration with the, the props, with the... Um, uh, so often one fears and worries that uh, uh, when you got, you're being led through a procession of um, objects into a, a film situation that, that you're just, it's a sort of souvenir shop for what you're going to get in the movie. And um, here I found myself, um, obviously the film is, is screened because it's an hour long and it's screened on the hour. Um, it doesn't encourage too much going back and forth. It's, it's got enough narrative pull that one doesn't want to miss anything. But I felt that, um, I felt in particular the masks were a, a really quite gripping um, feature, an aspect of the, of the film. How, the, um, how there was a possibility of um, emoting through uh, a heavy mask. Um, what, did, what did you make of the, the narrative structure of this, Lance? I thought it was a little heavy-handed, um, a little bit of an homage to her grandmother and the death of her grandmother. I thought it was a little bit uh, nostalgic, maybe. Um, I, I think that she's, and I want to talk about the masks, but uh, I think that she's probably could be a good filmmaker, but that maybe she hasn't found her subject or her voice yet relative to what she needs to do. So it's, to me, it was a little long and a little plodding and, um, but the masks I found really intriguing because there's, there's an image of, I don't know, are there 50 masks maybe that are mm -hmm. used throughout different ages, male and female, and they look like small paintings when you get up to them, but they're, each one has a particular expression. And at first I was really drawn into the masks and I was, um, I thought, well, this is the most interesting part because you see these masks and these people have these responses to things and they're sometimes they're poignant, sometimes they're funny. Um, but then eventually, you know, 40 minutes in, I really felt like the masks started to become the Achilles heel of the, of the, sh of the movie. And I remember once taking a theater workshop years ago and they made us put on masks so that we would not be able to use our faces to emote, so we'd have to use our bodies, and they'd tell us, you're not, you're not emoting, you're not, you know, we're, we're not reading what you're feeling. And in this case, I started to miss the human element of these characters because of the mass. I felt like I was kind of shut off at a certain point, and I was, the thing was kind of driven by the music, by the soft focus, by the, uh, I, I don't know, the combinations of, um, you know, it's really a coming-of-age story. It's about, you know, an alcoholic father, and, you know, she's merged. It's a little bit like Persona, like Bergman's Persona on some level. Also a little bit like a racer head at times with that giant baby that's coming at you, you know. It's, it's freaky. It's odd. It's, I don't know. Uh, 
I mean, she has, there are these wonderful vignettes, but I just don't know if it translates into a 58-minute long film. There's some absolutely stunning images yeah. that she's able yeah. to conjure with these masks, which, uh, you know, as still images, they're just... Well, I love the scene in the, uh, which then they showed a, a still of it, in the classroom where the teacher has got a whole blackboard of scribbles mm. and the children are, you know, she just keeps more, you know, it, there's some, some very real moments somehow that I think she really captures and conveys in that. But mm. overall, uh, it went on too long for me. Right, right. It may have been better if, if somehow, uh, I mean, the, 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 the movie is in a dark, secluded space and it's very absorbing and that's, that works as a presentation. Um, but it may be that the, the nature of the material is such that um, more of a, I don't know how it could have been orchestrated, but some, some way of uh, segueing from one to the other, uh, some, some possibility of um, uh, dipping in and out uh, of the video might have actually been more, more persuasive. Um, maybe she needs uh, Omar Fast's multi-channel um, setup in order to, uh, make to bring out the more tableau-like and to allow the, the visitor to construct their own narrative sequence. Um, well, any impressions? I, I, I'm going to do the dog ate my homework thing. Um, Yale ate my time, so this is the one I didn't see in the flesh. Right. And I hesitate to be critical of anything that I have not seen in the flesh. However, I will just sort of open this as a, a But you, we did have access to a Vimeo yeah. of the film. But uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the sculptural component of it and about how unsculptural props generally are. And uh, this is true across the board. I mean, if you look, I remember one time seeing it, there was a show that Christian Lee did downtown where he had the props for Dead Ringer, <coughs> or whatever that um, film was that was done by um, a British director who did... Um, oh, um, what? David Cronenberg, exactly. And there were these horrendous gynecological tools <coughs> on the film, which when they were on... In, on display were not horrendous. They were just kind of clunky. Mm. And most of what uh, Matthew Barney has put out as sculpture, which first appeared as props, doesn't look very good as sculpture. Um, I think there's a kind of a problem because the, the, the thing that the, the camera can seize and make look gorgeous in itself probably isn't that gorgeous. And I remember yes. back in the days when I was you know, like an amateur stage set designer, they would give you these techniques for how do, how, do you, how do you make something legible in the back of the house? And it's gross, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work if you're right on top of it, but it works great if you're in the back of the house. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a sort of a cinematic equivalent to that problem, and I don't know of an artist who's really solved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, Kara, you were actually taken by the sculptural quality, though, of, of I the... I am. I, I was. Um, you know, and then I also... Yeah. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't let us disabuse. I'm, I'm not judging. I'm <laughs> asking leading questions. <laughs> but I think, you know, what she's done with the sculptural installation at Pioneer Works isn't necessarily replicated in the films. Um, you know, I, I really think that things are obfuscated enough in the film where you don't feel as though you just have a prop of something that was used in the mm -hmm. film. The masks, yes, but the enormous redwood tree and this kind of beach breast, I mean, those, th those are things that are not clearly defined in the film. So they didn't really read as um, vestiges of something that had happened and we were just kind of seeing the aftermath of. They really stood on their own merits for me. Right. Yeah, I had the feeling space. with, for instance, in the back, the bed at the mm -hmm. the upturned bed, 
at the top of the hill, which I didn't really understand in the video. But when I saw it there, it made me laugh out loud because I thought, yeah, that's like so many relationships. You know, you climb up this hill to the bed and then it just kind of, you know, throws you out and you roll back down. You know, it's just like, you know, it, well, you know, three years in, whatever. Um, <laughs> but, and so there was something about it that to me was, had, had a kind of poignancy, but I still, um, to Rob's point, it still felt like a prop to me um, that I was experiencing. And I think the Matthew Barney is a good reference because I, I feel that same way often with when the props are shown. I didn't quite feel that so much with the masks themselves because I was interested enough in mm. seeing them all. Um, because you know, one of the questions I had when I went to the gallery was, how often were the masks changed on the characters or did the characters have the same masks throughout the film? And they were changed, I, I found out. And I wasn't sure about that. Uh, anyway. It reminded me a little bit of some masks that Dubuffet made very early in his career. Who? Uh, Dubuffet. Okay. John Dubuffet. And he, yeah. he, he had a whole career before he got to being John Dubuffet. And it's kind of interesting stuff. But there was a whole set of masks he made. They're wonderful. You know? mm. So masks can be great. And, and partly because they actually really are paintings in some cases. Yeah. Um, I'm th I would say, though, I'd, I'd like to talk with Cara about the, the actual sculptural quality of the material. But the redwood tree, obviously, um, uh, the environmentalists among us, uh, all of us, would be horrified if there was an actual redwood tree in the gallery. Um, they're pretty rare and one they're thousands of years old. And part of the message of the movie, or not the message of the movie, but a, a motif in the movie is the is the brutality of, of um, um, chopping down those trees and um, of, of the sensation also that the, that the tree knows when it's being attacked, um, or the, the, the research suggesting that. Um, so what we have in the nave sort of suspended, uh, I keep calling it the nave, in this double volume um, industrial space is um, obviously a, a sculptural representation of a, a tree. It doesn't didn't feel materially very tree-like, so I didn't know what it was, what its status was. Was it um, uh, a representation of a tree, an approximation of a tree? Um, what what intrinsic quality it had as a as a material? Um, did, did you did you feel she was handling the materials in an interesting way in that in that piece? I mean, I think she was doing. It's an enormous space to be able to tackle, and I think mm. she was really trying to use material to. Uh, the materials that she did utilize for the, I don't know if we can get an image of the redwood tree No, we, we're just, we're talking, we're describing. Um, <laughs> I, I think she was using them to the best of her ability in order to be able to suspend this enormous sculpture from uh, the ceiling mounts. But, you know, I also think that her work has, in the past, utilized material in a way that is, it, it has this kind of DIY aesthetic to it, um, I don't think she was looking to approximate an actual redwood tree. I think there was, you know, that's really where the surreal kind of enters into the equation is in this slippage between what is represented and then the thing that we're actually, that we actually encounter. Um, and so in that sense, I think it was successful, right? I think if the illusion was too complete, then we would have, we would have read it very differently. It wouldn't have taken on that kind of cinematic quality that I think she was looking to link with the film. Um, so for me, her use of materials were uh, were interesting, and I think they were successful in terms of uh, what 
I can only, I, I mean, I can't speak for the artist in terms of what her intentions were, but this is as far as I could read. Yeah. Um, they seem to align. Well, doesn't that also bring up the issue of sometimes artists are maybe given too much space? Well, you know, and it's like, oh, mm. fuck, you know, <laughs> what am I going to put in here? And, um, you know, that, can we say fuck? Um, <laughs> can we say fuck? It's in a lot of books upstairs on the shelves, I'm sure. It's, um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> what time? Well, it's actually almost eight o'clock, so we can say fuck, yes. But, um, <laughs> but uh, we don't have to. It's up to us. Um, um, no minors present. No, no, we're fine. Um, but uh, certainly... Pioneer Works um, has the potential slash problem that, that I, I cited Tate Modern's Turbine Hall. It's, uh, it's, it's a place demanding a, gra a grand project, a big statement, uh, an intervention, and that uh, is sometimes giving enough rope to an artist, um, or it's giving a great stage to an artist. Well, in the film is metaphor you it, it, want. It, it's the point at which the artist needs an intervention, where right. all the friends sit down and say, don't do it. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, put the bookshop in the nave and make your installation exactly. <laughs> exactly. in that <laughs> alcove on the side. Why not? It, you're the master of this situation, and uh, don't let the curators or uh, tell you what, um, what your big opportunities are. Yeah. Well, the film is intimate to me, and it, it's yes. very personal, and maybe too personal. You know, maybe it's not objective enough somehow. Maybe it wasn't pulled out. It was too subjective, maybe. Well, yeah, I mean, if you can't be subjective about your dead grandmother, I mean, where... Well, where exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... Yes, but there were a couple of times when I thought of, like, a Coke commercial or something, you know, when the puppies right. are running and it's soft focus, and, mm. you know. I mean, mm. it, but, yeah, and I feel, you know, I understand, but... Um, yes. But then maybe... The, the sculptures themselves are so large and so, ma you know, there's mm -hmm. such a grand scale of mm. object that mm. it sets a certain kind of tone before you get to the film that maybe um, yes. isn't... Isn't fulfilled? So we're going back well, and very forth other. between... It's very other, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going back and forth with uh, props, movie, mm, uh, you know, sculpture movie. I mean, it, whether, whether the uh, movie is not living up to the props or whether the props are you know it's a, it's a it's a tough one i mean i think uh, rob has really put his finger on it with this this ongoing um issue for the the filmmaker uh the the, the video oriented artist um who has uh, whether the sculpture are, are sort of knockoffs i mean because of obviously how do you how do you mon how do you monetize a video it's usually by making selling a sculpture i wasn't i wasn't saying that actually and i'm not quite so cynical i think it's just a different register of yep. visual experience and that's mm -hmm. where the discrepancy lies and that's where the trouble starts i would also say and again i haven't seen this but you know i think you know real serious failure if this is a failure Mm. or partial success, if this is a partial success, is a perfectly good thing for an artist to do. And spaces yeah. like this are made for that. You, know, yeah. you do try something that you wouldn't be able to try elsewhere, and mm. if it's you know, some considerable part of the way to what you imagined, you have mm. you know, done what you should do. Yeah. And, and I, th I think one shouldn't be too quick to dismiss. Oh, I don't think we are being dismissed. I'm not, I'm not I think sure if you are, but no. I'm just, as, as a mm. member of the audience, mm. Mm. I think one should just sort of give some leeway. Yeah. Well, yeah. Also, I very much look forward to the next film she does, yeah. if she chooses to do one. Exactly. I'll see it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, she has a grandfather. Is he still living? <laughs> 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 right. Yes. 
Sorry, that was that was uncalled for. Sorry. <laughs> 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 at least, at least it was PG rated. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, cool. Well, I think there's a there's a lot of meat in in these two films that the audience is probably those those who have seen them um, must be must be dying to let off. I, I mean, the the fast in particular, I think, um, uh, has a, has a, has a density of um, well, both both these films are um, are dense in in layers of metaphor and and. Um, and and the genres and themes they touch upon. So, um, audience, this is a moment where we have a a, ra a roving mic from from um, Joel here, who's going to come round, um, both to be able to hear you and also to record you. Please do wait for the mic, and um, we'll take it in either order, uh, fast or low. So, I think you guys really, when you're talking about the Omar fast, if you throw out the incest which is at the core of continuity, then you are missing the main brunt of the emotional relationship between how the West is seen and how we're seen from outside. We're just this incestuous helicopter love, weird, you know, insider club of Christian nations. That's us. And I, and I, and I think mean. that that maybe, I, I think that might be one broad brush, but I think that, that that incest question, it keeps happening again and again and again, and the, the abusive nature of it and the weirdness of it and all that. It's, it was the best thing to me about how creepy the Omar Fast work was. Mm. I unfortunately, time conspired, and I also didn't get out to Pioneer Works. It, the hours have to be extended because I really made an effort to try to go see it. Uh, but uh, once again, it, it is really difficult to play a very great space. And you know, Michelangelo ran away from the Sistine Chapel and had to be found. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that one. Other thoughts? Yes, I think we 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 perhaps didn't do due diligence in our discussion of fast in in really actually grappling with the fact that obliquely. In, in, in all the films, it's, I mean, th the question one, one might ask is whether the, um, the wars in, in the Middle East are um, a, a subject or a setting. Uh, are, they, are, they, um, are, they, are they just simply the times in which we live and then the, the, a filter through which to, to view bourgeois family values um, in or, or uh, alienation from labor, which might be more the themes of these works? Or is this uh, young Israeli filmmaker really dealing with war as a subject? I, I felt like all of the themes were very oblique and kind of all at the same tone. I didn't feel like necessarily there was one that overpowered another so that... Um, to me, you know, there were so many themes going on in these films that were overlapping that mm -hmm. uh, from, you know, domestic life and suburban mm -hmm. life and family versus intimacy versus, you know, Oedipal stuff and Electra mm -hmm. stuff. And I mean, you know, it was just just kept going on war and you know, peace and death and life. And I mean, um, childhood, adult. I mean, it was but I still felt like they were all kind of held here, kind of as a wall almost, to kind of keep us separate. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't think that there was one overriding theme. Did, did, it, did you? <coughs> one? I no. actually think in the first film there was more of a theme, a specific theme in terms of... Which is the first? You uh, mean the, the 5,000 5, feet? feet? Okay. Mm. 
um, where it's you know really looking at this disconnect between the perpetrators of war and then the reality of that experience and um, what our accountability is. I, I really felt like that was a predominant theme of the first film. The second and the third are very different in the sense that you know, I, I, I felt as though he was going for this type of immersive experience, even in terms of, you know, to go back to this question of where you actually view these films, the bleed over in terms of sound and the way that they inform one another at certain points during the loop. Um, he was he was really going for that immersion, but at the same time, I felt the same way you did, where there was this wall where you couldn't actually access that. And I don't know if that's an intentional aspect of the work or if that's a failure of the work. I mean, this is all subjective, I guess, in a sense, but um, in terms of thematics, I would absolutely separate but the first I, I, and the I, second. I don't think it is actually all subjective. I think this is what our criticism is. It's when you sort of jump in and say, okay, there are conventions, there are forms, how does this artist use them, to what effect, and so on and so forth, where it isn't just how, at least how I feel about it, it's how I feel about the way he addresses his problems. You know, and particularly in the one in the spring film, there's some amazing stuff in there. I mean, his his way of portraying the kid online, you know, uh, and the the sort of relation to drugs, the relation to uh, those recruitment films for Al Qaeda and so on. And so on. There's a lot of incredibly vivid current stuff, but it's also mixed into you know, sort of uh, psycho killer episodes and uh, the, the, the looping of the stories of the two men mm. and the homoerotic content, which is sort of floating but never nailed down, not even enough to know what it's about. Or, or who, it's it's there, about. Uh, who it's about. Who it's about. And I, I ended up thinking, okay, this is, a, this is a guy who is having his cake and eating it too, except that it doesn't make for a, a cohesive work of art. And, mm. you know, it's one thing to take, to take something apart and open up gaps in it. It's another thing to never quite assemble something. I think mm -hmm. that's where he is. Mm. Mm. I just wondered if maybe <clears throat> there was a certain dynamic or aspect to Omar Fast films that was being missed by you guys, which was I thought it was really interesting because he, I felt, was playing with all the conventional tropes and structures that we are used to, whether it's like documentary or reportage of war or an idea of a film and he was kind of deconstructing that and messing around with it so that we were being kind of forced to realize how unreliable they are as mediums to mm. mediums that we experience and I felt like he was playing with that. I think he was playing with it too but I think yeah. that's old news. I think deconstruction has been done time and time again and the we is doesn't exist anymore. There is no conventional we who knows or sees these things. Yeah, I and agree. So, I agree. So I think, I think at this point, a filmmaker of his talent should have moved further in that process than he seems to have done. Mm. I agree. Yes. How, how comfortable are we with the art historical and cinematic um, references uh, within the work? <coughs> I think particularly when um, the, the couple are driving to pick up their son from the station and they see a camel walking down them in this uh, sort of rural German setting, which is obviously a surreal um, situation. And they follow the camel down a path, and then they, they walk up an embankment, and they're standing side by side, very Caspar David Friedrich, and then they're looking down into this pit, and then it's Jeff Wall's um, yeah. Russian <laughs> Jeff soldiers uh, strewn uh, <laughs> over the, the, the rocks in, uh, in Afghanistan. So it's... Um, um, was that adding richness or was that uh, adding 
um, elusive pose, what did we think? <laughs> Perhaps not richness, otherwise somebody would have jumped in. Um, some further comments on, on either, how about Molly Lowe? Anybody? Yes. Uh, there's a I'm a little worried that the conversation around Lowe's film has been critiqued. Is the mic on? Sorry. Um, okay. Oh. I'm worried that the conversation around Molly Lowe's film was critiqued in a very gendered mode. Um, to use words like too, or to use phrases like too personal and nostalgic with such a negative spin, considering if we if it was a film whose subject was about a boy and his grandfather. Um, I disagree. Really? Um, I think yeah, nostalgia, as Tarkovsky said, is unearned emotion, um, or sentimentality is unearned emotion, and I think that there's a level of sentimentality that she's playing to that's too easy. And I don't think it has anything to do with gender whatsoever. I think it has to do with just not quite um, making that leap into something that feels more objective and, and larger and you know, it falls too much on the personal. And I don't think, I don't see personal, I mean, I think you need personal, obviously. You have to be the most personal in your work. You have to be subjective, obviously. But you have to find a balance between subjectivity and objectivity. And like I said, I think that the, her, her subject was, she was maybe too close to her subject to be able to stand back from it enough to know how it would resonate with an audience. Um, it's, I think she fell off the mark, but not, not horribly so, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think to bring gender into it is to, uh, I think that's too easy a way out. Um, you know, I don't think personal it, it is... It is to suggest that sentimentality is a feminine emotion exclusively, which is crazy. Yes, which is bullshit, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I've, can I say bullshit? We've already um, uh, hit, a, hit a higher threshold, so I think uh, um, we, we can uh, probably... <laughs> you can work through your entire lexicon. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait until we get to Betty Tompkins. Will this... Uh, <laughs> uh, she'll, she'll wipe the floor with you, don't worry. And... Um, uh, Give a guy a beer and a country song and you'll find how very sentimental, sentimental guys can get. Yes, <laughs> oh. exactly. Is there going to be an index in your um, book on, of, of swear words to use in relation to modern and contemporary art? It'll be a chapter on bullshit probably. Okay, yeah. very good. All right. Um, but but um, we Footnotes don't let us cut of. your sh <laughs> critique short. It's a, yeah. it, would you like to elaborate on what yeah. you... Or, it, it, got the, it got a response. And I didn't mean yeah. to jump on you. I, I, it is something that I come across quite often, an argument. And I, so I was being maybe too, you know, Too male something. and assertive, but that's okay. Too, too male, maybe. That's okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's... Swearing and <laughs> cutting off women. <laughs> Why are there any women here? <laughs> I say, you should listen to my daughters. Um, yes. <laughs> or at least one of them. my read of... That was your read that too. That was my read of the work as well, and I, you know, I think it's it, it doesn't have much to do with gender. It's really about the way that she's playing with setting and time and place. Um, and there are just there are certain kinds of visual cues and also auditory cues that she was using that just they conjure up the nostalgia um, of an Americana 1940s. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's just factual information. I really don't think yeah. I'm I as a woman. I know I'm not filtering it through 
this, you know, lens of female sentimentality. Um, it's not something that I'm necessarily going to call out another artist on if I think that's what they're doing. I'm not saying that's what she's doing. I think she's she's purposefully manipulating this nostalgic element to get her point across and in order to transport us into a different time. Um, I just think she's leaning on it a bit too heavily in the film. I think, if anything, it's more uh, in to be seen through the filter of uh, nationality than gender because, uh, speaking as a non-American, it's, it, there's a very American way of dealing with uh, the narrative arc of a life lived through the century. And I'm not saying that there are specifically American signifiers, but the, the sense of the pastness, it had a little bit of a sort of boardwalk <coughs> empire feel to it sometimes. Um, uh, not that that's a bad thing at all, but um, um, it's interesting because it felt that actually it was, it was borrowing from conventions of, um, and possibilities of both uh, surrealism and also of um, no drama, well, um, also masterpiece theater, yes, just to go across the pond. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's it's uh, yeah that it's that it it had that um, the narrative arc felt very American. Um, yeah, we have a comment over here. Okay, like. we'll take one more comment. Thank you very much, and then we definitely want to get. I no. I, I found it nostalgic as well, and the Milo and I. And I, I, for me, it's not about gender. It's actually about race in a way. In the same way, I watch I Dream of Jeannie, or, or you know, we watch these old TV series from the 50s, and they're, you know, we understand now that these were kind of racial statements. For me, for me, I, I, I had that experience in watching this, mm. that, that somehow race played more of a role than one would think. Um, you, for you, it was national identi identity, but for me, it was actually race. In in Molly Lowe's yes. Redwood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't. Um, I don't recall a specific racial. Th well, uh, no, there's not, and that's part of it. But there's. It's also that I'm. I'm reminded there was actually one woman who was in it when they're in the club and she's singing on the stage. Yes. She appeared. She appeared to be a black woman, but. As I said, in the same way, when you watch old TV series from the 50s and 60s, you understand now that race kind of played a there's a there's a nostalgia and it's attached to race. I had the same experience in watching this. It's it's less a question than a statement. Okay, no and statements are very very welcome, but it, I would just say that perhaps you know it, it's a film about her and her grandmother and they they um, they're white. Well, they can't help it. That's, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> their limitation, but um, that's that's what we get a movie about. So anyway, look, um, part two, part two, ladies and thank you very much. Thank you for the comment. And let's now move on to our our second PowerPoint, and we're going to um, a feminist fest of uh, Judith Braun and Betty Tompkins. So I, s I I said feminist. I mean because Judith Braun, I mean Betty Tompkins. Clearly, we're in a feminist territory register. But um, Judith Braun um, was a, one of the pioneers of the, the feminist art movement. Um, I think it could be, or uh, not a pioneer perhaps, but uh, a luminary of the feminist art movement. And, and her, her earlier work um, uh, um, had a kind of very um, gutsy took a take on, on gender issues. Um, but um, 
One wouldn't necessarily get that in what we're looking at now, uh, Rob. What, how, how do you feel about um, Judith Braun's work? Well, this is a show I did see, so... Yes. I, <coughs> um, I had mixed feelings about it. It was admirable in many respects, but it also seemed to me to be... Um, I can't put my finger on it. it. It was too wedded to the process of making those very elegant tonalities and weaving them together. And the, things, the spaces that were suggested by the forms never happened. Mm -hmm. So that she was picturing spaces that were you know, complicated, vast, convoluted, and so on and so forth. But the actual thing that you saw was totally, the energy was totally contained to, I think, to too great a degree. And I wondered why she didn't let it out more um, and why it was particularly that way. <coughs> You know, again, I, I, I was stunned by some of the technique involved and I certainly was impressed by the concentration because to do that kind of work is really uh, a long-term commitment where you have to stay on top of it or it'll get away from you. Um, but I'm not sure that, that the choice of doing that kind of work needs to be reaffirmed again and again and again in quite the same way. A sidebar, by the way, there's an artist named Phil Hansen from Chicago who recently showed at James Cohen who makes interestingly crazy word things. He uses colors. He was in a recent Whitney Biennial. But I think there's a lot of this out there now. So it would almost be interesting to get them together and sort of compare within, if you will, the, the world of um, you know, obsessive compulsive wordsmiths yes. uh, what the options are. Because she would be the kind of he's sort of bordering on the Rococo and he, she is more, more of the classicist in technique and execution. Yes. We won't uh, um, critique your use of the word wedded in relation to a uh, feminist artist, but, uh, um, but we'll, we'll... You can wed anybody you uh, want these uh, days. You can, that's true. <laughs> exactly. We're in a very liberated age with wedding. Um, Cara, do you, do you feel... I mean, we have two exhibitions. The, the Simovac show gives us uh, this, this, the word play, as it were, and then uh, in, in Valerie McKenzie Gallery, we uh, fine art. We have that, um, uh, the the, the 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 microcosm, macrocosm um, aspect of the work. Um, is is there one in particular that you found the more engaging, or did you find them uh, very related? I was actually really taken in by the Simovac Project exhibition. Um, I think the obsessiveness that Braun brings to the study of these specific words, um, it, there's a necessity in that, right? It makes us hyper aware of how these words exist, how they're utilized in a culture. Um, I think that, that that action, that repetitive action becomes a performative element of the works that's actually incredibly important. Um, and the type of rigor and attention to detail, patience, um, that goes into the construction of these pieces, I felt is actually where their power resides. So I know that, you know, Braun has talked about these ideas of symmetry as being the, the container or the parameter um, around which she works, and then abstractions were really where she finds this freedom. Um, and in the word paintings, I felt that duality even more so than I did in the McKenzie um, exhibition. And... You know, I, I also think there was this really wonderful play between high and low, where, mm -hmm. you know, the choice of fonts that she's using, which some of them look like they could have been off of Grateful Dead banners, and others are, you know, you can kind of scroll through the font list in Word, and you can really play around 
Um, you know, there, there, there was, even though they're extremely formal exercises, I think there was something very kind of lighthearted and jovial and kind of poking fun or thumbing her nose at the way that these words um, are, are used and are assigned, right, in the larger sphere. Mm. Yeah. Lance? The crazy bitch didn't really do much for me. Um, the show, okay. Um, the uh, I didn't. I well, was it a three-year thing, or was it? But <laughs> it, 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 I, I mean, there. It, you know, what it reminded me. It reminded me a little bit of um, an art school assignment where everyone has to go home and do crazy bitch over the weekend, and then you see everybody's. It'll be crazy a, long, bitch. a long weekend in her yeah, case. Yeah, a long weekend, yeah. But, um, well, if you have an airbrush maybe or something. And I know these are handmade. But um, they remind me a little bit of machine aesthetic stuff, of a little bit of futurist kinds of things. But I think they're formally kind of dead in the water. I think that they, um, they have a kind of uh, sheen to them. Sometimes you might they might remind you of elements of leger or something. But they don't have too much light in them. And um, they, you know, they just feel very illustrative to me. That not really engaging in the formal aspects of 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 what a, what a black can do as a pressure, or or how you can get a sense of volume against flatness, and how that can really like, you know, torque the plane or something. And I, I don't, I feel like it's because she's going through the motions. It feels like she's ex they're exercises that she has planned for herself, planned out, and then executed, and then we see the. Um, you know, it's interesting to a point. I, the other show I found more compelling. Mm -hmm. And um, I found that the... Occasionally, I think she did reach a gestalt where I felt like there was a singularity to one of those forms, you know, where it might... It, it had tension in the plane. It activated both the black and the white. Um, it spun, maybe, or something. There were a couple that were circles. Um, and it had a kind of, of power on the page that, uh, that some of the others didn't for me, which they, they felt more decorative or more um, related, for instance, to other ideas like uh, microscopic images or diagrams or parts of crystals or something that as, as something that would inspire art, they were, you know, that's something, but then to bring these, they felt a little bit um, <coughs> lacking for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, overall, but you know they were they were charming. They're easy on the eye. They're pristine. They're um, they don't have a lot of demands for me. Yeah, yeah. I would just well, a little bit. I think decorative is fine. Well, I think decorative when it's yeah, done. I, well, I mean, the great art is decorative. There is some yeah. great decorative art. Oh yeah, I, all that's, frescoes. That's 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 <laughs> the territory she's entered into, and the question might be is has she pushed it or has she entered into it? You know, sort of. Yeah. Looking for a place in it rather than just claiming it and really yes, and also the decorative if if it's knowingly <coughs> decorative it's like if it's like pattern and decoration or if it's like um, um, and, and if there's a self conscious taking on of decoration that's that's a different thing well that, that and they felt fragmentary to me in that sense, like they're part of something larger, you know the show had a, had a had a power to it mm. that I don't think any one of these works by itself would have had. You know, there, it added up in a larger way. And, and in that sense, the decorative element, I think, was good. And I, I'm using, you know, I think, yeah, great, great decorative art. There's, mm. I don't have a problem with that but word. A show, but but a show that's yeah. uh, an accumulated energy 
and a consistency and a persistency. That would also be a show, as I believe uh, uh, the McKenzie show is, where, and to, to, to agree the Simovac show as well, that uh, that's a, a situation where the sum is greater than individual parts, not because of a decorative schema, but because of uh, sustained energy. Well, I mean, it is about energy levels, and supposing Myron Stout by mm. hand reproduced Altdorfer's calligraphic knots. Mm. That's a weird idea. You know? mm. I'll see it. If, if you're going to do the, the calligraphic knots, you do them in the medium ink, mm. where they are immediately legible you know, against mm. their ground, and it happened fast in the eye, and it's extremely elaborate. If you're going to do Myron Stout, you tend to go towards iconic forms yeah. that are you know, sort of charged by all of that labor-intensive filling. Mm. But I think she's, she's asked herself a, to do something that's almost an oxymoron mm. in terms of visual phenomena. The, the cleanness of her line is what's totally bizarre about these, isn't it, Kara? Uh, I mean, we, because the, the, the iconography, so to speak, is something that you might, uh, might have... Is, is not a million miles from um, artists like James Siena or um, uh, Fred Tomaselli. Well, Tomaselli for the symmetricality, Sienna for the obsessiveness. But with both those artists, there's the... Don't worry, I don't think it was you. There's the handmadeness, and, and there is the kind of... The tension that, that arises from engagement with materials. The... Um, uh, That's also... You know, J James's work is, for the most part at least, was done with enamel, mm. which dries in the same dimension no matter where you put it or how much of it you put there. Whereas if you're adding up a great deal of graphite mm -hmm. to get that dark line, it's a different thing, and the energy moves through the, through the form differently. Yeah, yeah. But with, with, with the... With most of the works at Mackenzie, on the other hand, are have the cleanness of the page and the the um, the, the graphite sort of shines off of it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just I actually I don't agree with the classification of the work as decorative. I really think that there's there's something else at work in these images, and I think that you know this interest in in the cosmic the universal you know the um the particle elements that make up experience that make up the world is very much um found in the, in the material choices that she's utilizing and then also in the symmetry right these references to nature to mathematics um and if if symmetry and math is considered decorative then i guess you know we get into the decorative realm but i i actually think that that classification of the work really dismisses a large part of what well, I, I would revalue. Well, I would revalue the word decorative as yeah, not a pejorative I do, I do, term. Is what I would. I do not mean it as a pejorative term. The mm. word decorative. I mean, in this context, I'm looking at it in a pejorative way. I mean, I feel that uh, decorative, when it's done to the at the highest level, is as high as anything else. Uh, for me, it falls too much on the other side of that, where it. It doesn't have the kind of individual presence of these images didn't for me that I, I guess I demand from a work of art or that I get from a work mm -hmm. of art. And there are many artists who've used fractals and math and uh, I mean, you know, Kandinsky, Paul Clay. There are many artists who've thought about all of those ideas and w moved beyond it. And for me, the reference was always too much back to the source, mm -hmm. you know, where it was like, oh, I'm aware of the source more than I am the... The phenomenon. The pheno the, yeah. Well, the, the, the fact that for me... You know, a drawing needs to, at a certain point, have a life of its own that, that, that mm -hmm. transcends its source, that transcends all the things that can be said about it. Mm -hmm. And there's one line in the uh, press release about 
um, where to me it went over the edge. And it was something about that she uses graphite or carbon-based materials because that's a natural material. And to right. claim that, for an artist to claim that as having some kind of value um, beyond, you know, so is oil paint, so is charcoal. So, I mean, that, that, to try and lay claim to that somehow, it seems like, you know, somebody's scrambling for, uh, you know, everything I can get. Oh, look, I'm using carbon too. Oh, look, you know, like, and, and I, I have wood in my studio. You know, okay. it's like, uh, I, I give it that on that one, um, although I understand the carbon. What you, well, what, I understand what you're saying, but I think that there's a, that one can make the case. What about another comparison? The things that she's doing in Via Selmans, intense right. graphic rendering technique, often with with graphite, sometimes with with uh, charcoal or something darker, mm -hmm. instantly and so on. And I guess I guess I can see that she's engaged in a activity. I can see that the, that the, the macrocosmic, microcosmic, natural form element is a part of it. I just wish it hit harder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I, I will say that I wish that there was more of the, the fingerings, yeah. you know, those pieces, that insta the site-specific installations. You know, here, Let's I not look like at the slides. Oh. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Um, oh, if you want to look at the slides, describe them, though. I'm yeah, well, I was going to say oh, that Go ahead. that I think that she could have pushed this much farther in terms of the installation and how it interacted with the framed pieces that were on the wall. Yes. Um, and that sense of physical presence is maybe one of the things that I was lacking in terms of the show, where because everything was so pristine, because it was so calculated and it's hanging, um, I wanted to see more of the actual artists um, we, in the work. Yeah, what we get in Selmans, though, is... is Something of the meditative nuttiness of their execution, don't well, we? They're, they're it's these impossible. have that too, I have to these, say. That, these that, have that too, yeah. yes. Um, does it take us... Uh, but yeah, they do, don't they? <coughs> no, um, VA uses images which are uh, you know, fragments of the classical sublime but presented in a different way. Right. And, and, and presented in a way which is almost anti-sublime, except. Mm -hmm. except. Yeah. And the, the nuttiness of the execution is the thing that takes them over. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, I can find all kinds of arguments in favor of these things. They just don't quite, I don't experience them that way. That's, I guess, my problem. Right. They're well, good on paper. <laughs> may I add one more thing? Please. Uh, <coughs> you are very aware of the craft, craftsmanship, craftswomanship here, whatever, yes. okay? You're very aware of the hand when you get up on them. In the, dark, in the darks of these images, you can see that they've been, it's almost like a cross-hatching. It almost has a kind of um, brushed steel quality. And it's, it's, very, it's cold and it's biting and it's, it, has a, it has a presence that's there. But then I also feel like there's, it's, it's what I feel often with Martin Perrier's work, where, oh my God, it's so well-crafted, but whatever. You know, like where I'm kind of in the end left, um, like, okay, you know, it feels still a little bit too much of um, that it hasn't moved into the realm of art. It's still more about somehow the, you know, the wood shop. And I'm not saying that uh, mm. something made of wood can't be art. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that with her, sometimes I'm more aware of the intensity of her pursuit, the, the nuttiness of it in a way, the, the obsession of it. Um, I think that's a very interesting comparison because with Puria... Uh, the both the iconography and the execution um, fold uh, uh, aspects of um, African-American experience into the work we're seeing. 
And I, I wonder, as, as a, uh, an artist, uh, Cara, as, as Braun is an artist with a, a kind of fiery feminist... Um, I hope that's not a, I hope that's an okay gendering. Um, uh, a, a sort of um, more of a, a background, a personal background in uh, feminist activism and art. Um, whether um, whether her her hand, her control, her iconography as well um, does something similar. Well, I was actually going to say I think the craft element is is critical to the work, and I think she's utilizing that in a very conscious way as a way of commenting on this, you know, this notion of um, female maybe obsessiveness or neuroticism. It's a it's a way of getting into dangerous territory here. Yeah, but I but I think (laughs) that she's acknowledging the kind of arguments and the kind of discussions that were being had in the 70s mm. um, when the craft movement was really uh, embraced by certain feminist artists, right, where craft became kind of the point of contention and moving it into the realm of fine art was really critical. Um, and, and I don't see these as necessarily disconnected from that. I think there's a channeling of that same kind of motivation here in these and works. Yet the, the and, the de- and the decorative was likewise mm. a gendered yes. thing. And but also yes. that, that's, a, that's a certain kind of view about that period. And I mean, you know, the, the point is pre-Columbian art, tapestries, um, Native American art, that anything you can throw into the craft realm has, is of the highest level of, as, as anything else. And so it's being repurposed in a way. It's being taken, you know, the, well, now we're going to make it about craft. And so it shifts the emphasis, but I don't know that it does anything for craft, so to speak. Yeah, to but do Lance, that. the, the yeah. thing is, I think, though, that when, when it came to artists of the 70s in particular onwards, uh, bringing both the decorative and craft um, and uh, back, uh, insisting on it, uh, them as, as valid elements within an avant-garde pursuit, it's a rebellion against the, the hard strictures of minimal and conceptual art. And that's, that's really the background in, in, of, of that. But what's intriguing to me is that um, Braun's hand um, uh, is... Uh, uh, the, the we talk about the craft, but it's actually a technical finesse. And uh, when I think of craft, I think of actually um, a traditional form that, that allows emotion to seep through it. Uh, whereas, whereas what we get in, in, in most of her drawings, it, that seems to be repressed in favor of um, a cleanness. Well, maybe a I, I, should, I, probably, I, I might have introduced the word craft here. I probably should have used the word facture or something. Um, you know, I, because I think we've gotten into a different realm, mm. which I don't even think that much about traditional craft work yeah. in re- relation to this work. Yeah. Um, but it's but it's yes, it's finesse, I think, is the word. But maybe, why, or why, so, so that's or, what I want to see. Yeah. Uh, that's what I want to understand in terms of uh, a potential feminist or non-feminist discourse is, is whether, Cara, whether well, any of us, we think like that... For example, um, I think Judy Chicago was using a lot of that same language in the 70s, and she was with these sleek forms and these very kind of sexy lines and right. you know, the way that she was manipulating material. And, you know, I, I see a, a very different, I mean, a more contemporary and a, you know a more nuanced conversation in these works, but mm-hmm. you know, there's certain images here which definitely recall, um, I, I think, some of the lines and overlaps, even these designs that can look more like um, 
you know, maybe tattoos mm. or, you know, there's something about the sleekness of them that yes. gives them their charge and gives them their energy. And yes. I think she's consciously manipulating that terrain. I found some uh, of the... Uh, uh, please. I, I say, first of all, I just want to briefly hold up a defense of Martin Purrier, who I do mm. not think is guilty of, <laughs> of being overly crafted or something like that. He is a craftsman. He understands the traditions from which he's coming, which are both African and Scandinavian. These are deliberate choices. They are a deliberate digression from minimal art both in terms of materials and executions of form and anthropomorphism. He's a really complicated artist, so I think he deserves better. But anyway, um, I would say, you know, that, you know, I, what I would like to see, because again, I went, I went to show and I, I, I wanted to like it more than I did. I didn't dislike it at all. I wonder whether it's not time for her to put these images through their paces at a different scale and with a different material. And if she, if she might take the very forms and problems that she's dealing with in terms of symmetries and reversible symmetries and things like that and just let them breathe, let them take over more space, let them happen faster in the eye. Mm. Faster, yes. I think uh, what, what, what struck me as interesting is that um, the, 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 the mode of execution seemed to be completely, uh, seemed to be, seemed to have a a non-relationship with the expansiveness of the image. I, I was actually put in mind in some ways of um, George O'Keefe for some of these because of the way that the there's a kind of the flowering and the, the sort of the vaginal flowering of some of these forms um, was... Um, well, the iconic frontality too yes. of them yeah. makes you think of that. Yes, um, <laughs> and yet it's there's, there's, um, there's a sort of um, a lack of sexiness in the touch. Uh, which is seems to be uh, which is a valid aesthetic choice, but it's um, depends on your, your sexuality. I, I, <laughs> I suppose yeah. so. Perhaps I don't know if I would agree with that, but right, uh, the, the 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 control, the finesse, the the hardness of the line, um, and the um, the um. But that's present in some hand? of the pieces, but not slow all hand. of them. Yes. <laughs> that's present in some of the pieces, though, but not in all of them. Right. You know, for example, the, the piece with bleached charcoal, where you know she's using that that fingering technique. I mean, that that has a lot of air and breath around it. So I think that I, I'm not saying that every single image in the show was a complete success. I think yes. there are varying degrees of that. Um, but I also think there are varying degrees of that hard edge, um, decorative kind of meeting up against the more organic. Yeah. I, I would say that there were there were individual many individual images there that um, took my breath away in their um, their gorgeousness and um, and and the the astounding way of their realization. So now let's um, let we our, our last show takes us to the Flag Art Foundation um, and uh, what what is actually happening here? Is this uh, what 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 do we get from these? Uh, these paintings, and what do we get from this installation of these paintings? Um, Lance? Um, Betty Tompkins sent out uh, emails to a number of her friends, male and female, received 3,500 responses, basically equal, um, from men and women. With requ She requested um, words that had something to do with women, right? Was I mean, I don't... I don't, something like that, okay? It could be, and she even gave suggestions, like it could be, uh, could be this or this or whatever you want to put in between, and then to give us a uh, 
if you use a foreign word other than English, please give us the, the translation, um, whether it's slang or not. What was your question? Um, <laughs> she, she made a thousand paintings, yes, okay. with these words. Um, <coughs> and what did you ask me? Well, I asked you um, what, um, I, I thank you very much for giving us a little backstory. Uh, if the question had been, uh, how did she do this, or how did she go about this, then uh, you'd have given me well, a great answer, but I you've also given me great information, so I'm grateful I to wanted, you. I wanted, you know, but, but one I'm of the reasons uh, that I wanted to, to put that out there is because I think the show is more of a sociological experiment than it is um, a show of paintings. I think, um, I think as paintings, uh, they're absolute bullshit. I think that as, as ideas, they're interesting. Um, that the, the amount of, of information that comes in is interesting. I learned so much yes. from, um, I don't know what a French trench is, but I learned about that, and maybe I'll look it up. But there are a lot of terms I learned about. Um, I didn't know there were so many words for different parts of the female anatomy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, slang, whatever. I, it was interesting yes. on that level. But as paintings, I thought they were very slapdash. They were very much, uh, um, you know, just like t churning them out, uh, stenciled words. I, there's, there's no sense for me of the interrelationship of the, the language with the paintings themselves. In fact, it was almost like that's the point. And, and there was a, you know, it's like a statement against, oh, I'm going to do a kind of faux Jackson Pollock painting um, or a faux Abex painting, and then I'll put a word over it. And there was a total disconnect for me. In terms of, they weren't visually uh, rewarding for me in any way. Um, so that's my take. All right. Yeah. Do you, are you happy with that, uh, Cara? Do you agree with that verdict? <laughs> you know, I think for me it was... Um, it was interesting to see the show knowing Betty's other works, the fuck paintings, which is she's most well known for, and you know, which are very describe much about. Describe those for us, then. I'm sorry. Can you describe those for us quickly? Um, they're very large, close-up, cropped paintings of heterosexual intercourse, essentially. I, I don't know how else to describe them more eloquently. They're very factual in that regard. Very graphic. Um, Big photorealistic paintings. Black and white. Often. Grayscale. Yeah. Um, which she made in the late 60s and then and into the 70s, I believe, and then did not show these paintings until 2002 um, when she exhibited them with Mitchell Algis, um, which is really where she said... Um, she said in an interview, I was going back through some material um, in preparation for the talk, and she said she really feels as though her career began in 2002, which is, you know, absolutely insane idea to think about, considering she'd been w making work for 30 years in the interim. Um, but at the same time, it just goes to show uh, this sort of suppression and conservatism that was present in the art world at the time that she was making those original paintings. But as an aside, you know, I think those were very much about pleasure, right? They were very much about engaging with um, images for their, both their formal beauty and for the emotional, physical kind of connection that they would conjure up in the viewer. And these paintings to me felt, um, they were very much about anti-pleasure, right? I, I think what was 
what is what was the most interesting component of the show was how it really divided experience along gender lines. So I would imagine that my read of the exhibition was very different than both of your reads as the exhibition of the exhibition being a woman myself, having a different relationship to the types of terms, phrases, and um, language that was on the wall. Um, you know, I think that that was something that she was consciously controlling. Um, I would agree with you, Lance, in the sense that I don't, I don't know if the paintings themselves were necessarily successful um, in terms of integrating background and word, but as a collective experience, um, it really packed a strong punch. Because it's an accumulative experience, and actually visitors to the exhibition, as we saw in, in one image, uh, there's a wall in which one can sit at a desk and... Uh, contribute some some new text for, for the artist to consider uh, uh, some phrase. I uh, felt I had to come up with something. Um, so it's always an ethical dilemma if you're a critic reviewing a show which has an interactive element, because you could say, uh, if you interact, you're um, you've become part of what you're critiquing, and that has a ethical um, <laughs> problem aspect problematic. But on the other hand, if you don't, you haven't really you you haven't seen the piece because that's part of the viewing experience. So I succumbed to temptation and offered um, <coughs> nice legs, shame about the boat race. Um, that's Cockney rhyming slang for face. Um, so that's, uh, that would go with the, the, the general tone of misogyny. Um, I, I thought that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, this is a, a really interesting, uh, a fascinating contrast with Judith Braun, because it's... Um, it's it's uh, you've gone from the sublime to the self-consciously ridiculous, but it's 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 a way of it's a cathartic dealing with misogyny, isn't it? Um, and um, um, is it therefore also? I don't uh, think I agree with I I don't agree with Lance in the dismissal or even Cara in the skepticism of 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 the painting. I think there's there's a lot of painterly jouissance, fun with color and shape and texture in these. I think they're rather rather amazing little things, actually. They have the kind of iconic presence. Those if you see one or two of them at a time, as I, as I have in other places. Um, obviously, this is like a Sistine Chapel of... Um, um, Sistine Chapel meets um, toilet wall um, of um, s s scribble and decor, as it were. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think that there's something um, fun, fun, cathartic and provocative about it at the same time. I would say jouissance is the mot juste, because jouissance is the French word for orgasm. Right. Um, so, <laughs> um, <coughs> and that's actually one of the things that people forget when they read Roland Barthes, is that's the word he uses. And rather than the dry, pedantic kind of versions of Barthes that lots of people get in their college classes, he is really interested in the orgasm. He likes language to be that kind of spasm of pleasure. Anyway, um, be that as it may, I saw the Mitchell Algers show too, which I thought was very interesting. And I thought the history of this work and where it's been and where it's not been is also very interesting. Um, and then I have to complain that the Flag Foundation closes at 5 o'clock. It's the only entity in all of Chelsea that closes at 5 o'clock, so I arrived just at the door, just as they were shutting me out. So I have only experienced these things through... The I was hoping you were going to lie and just breeze over that, but no, okay. No, I, I'm, I'm fine, sorry. You're but, but the thing Puritan is... Puritan stock, obviously. But, uh, I'm Puritan stock, yeah. But I, mean, but I do get what these are, and I get something about... I know how to read images sufficiently well to know something about what they are physically. Um, I think this is a very interesting line. This is somebody who's 
mid to late career who is, you know, beginning to just throw the cards up and play again. And, and I, I admire it. I connected to a lot of different people. I mean, um, what's his name who died? Um, Jason Rhodes yes. did a piece that was in the Biennale I did in Venice, which was called Black Pussy, which was all these different words for pussy in all different languages in neon, right? And I thought this was kind of a rejoinder uh, and an interesting one, too. And uh, Lin Tian Miao as well, the Chinese artist, oh really? okay. uh, did a whole installation of um, um, a pussy lexicon. Yeah. Yes. And, and there's that. Um, I also have been reminded of other people. I mean, Deb Cass, for example, has been using really blunt texts in this mm -hmm. way. Um, once upon a time, Louise Fishman did a whole series of things called the Angry Drawings, where she used texts in this way. This is, this, is a, this is a good place to go for feminists, or has been a good place to go for feminists for a long, long, long time. And what's pleasant about it is, or not pleasant, it's not the right word, what's fun about it is it doesn't, it's not repetitive. New things happen each time because the energy that prompts the women who've done this mm. is usually urgent energy. Well, and I it comes out in the form. Oh, sorry. But I, I think there's a big difference between what, sh what Tompkins is doing and say what somebody like Joan Snyder does, um, who is also a feminist painter who uses a lot of text, words, um, a lot of issues that she brings to the fore, but she's she always reaches some kind of gestalt with them. She always is, a, is as aware of the word as she is of how she is presenting it and how she's going to present it through whatever material she's doing. And I feel like um, that the stance here is, I don't give a fuck, um, which is, can be a stance about mm -hmm. the paintings themselves. Yep. Um, but, but it's a, for me, it's a slippery slope. It's like, it's, I'm gonna make a thousand paintings, but I don't really give a fuck about painting. And um, to me, it's kind of a, it, it's a, um, a cop-out in that sense. Um, and I don't really think that, I, I mean, I looked at every one of these paintings, you know, not mm -hmm. for long periods of time, no. but uh, I, not one of them was there even a moment in it that I felt was, was genuine and felt. It felt like she was watching TV while she was going through the motions and just churning out as many. You know, sometimes they were spray painted, sometimes they were stenciled. Let, you know, to me it was, um, you know, it's like, oh my God, the clock is ticking. You know, I've got to get these things done. I've got a thousand to do. Um, and so it's not, I don't have any problem with the project or with the uh, agenda or anything else, but you know what, convince <coughs> me through the work. You know, engage me so that I actually want to spend time with it. Um, otherwise, it's just a sociological experiment to me, which I found. I, I'm more interested in the, the, the paper I brought home that has mm. all of the text in it. I think it's more concise. It's clearer. I can sit and look at it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the, the paintings kind of offend me in that sense. Not because of the words, because they're just bad paintings. I, I think that's... That's um, a, a totally legitimate response, but what I would want to do if I had felt the same, which I didn't quite, I didn't feel the same, but um, I could easily have felt the same. But had I felt, ha had I felt the same, now this is, no, I'm not trying to raise, uh, you're happy to, I'm, I'm always happy for people to laugh, that's great. Um, uh, I got an alternative career ahead of me as a stand-up comic, but <laughs> the problem is I wasn't actually trying to make a joke. The point is, I was trying to say is that, um, in the circumstance where I had had your reaction, I would want to work through that reaction and see if, intentional or not on the part of the artist, I, I could fold that reaction um, 
back into the experience that this is engendering. Because um, one thing that's striking to me is that in her porn paintings, um, these, these, these intensely they're blown up and also close-ups at the same time of uh, moments of penetration, they are done in a, f uh, a, a really painstakingly fastidious uh, photorealist, uh, grisaille, black and white um, uh, technique. Um, one that would, you know, she and Judith Braun could see the same optician afterwards in, in terms of, um, uh, the, the and, and via Salmons, in terms of that, you know, exactitude and, and placement of uh, pixelation to get that um, effect. And so this is, these little paintings are so clearly um, a reaction against um, that sensation. Um, at the same time, then you throw in somebody like Christopher Wall, who's who's doing big black and white of banal and appropriated language. So it seems to me that there's there are the coordinates of something going on. That there's some sort of um, uh, there's some kind of violence against painting that that Lance is picking up in a negative way, and I'm picking up in the sense of the jouissance of it. Well, I was going to say I think she cares so much about painting. I mean, this has been her she career. She should learn to paint. She knows how to paint. I don't think she does. I think the fuck, fuck paintings are mm. equally as bad. They're just but, but, bigger. But, but, but what standard? Yeah. What is the criteria of knowing how to paint? I don't know. Titian? Um, oh, sure. Okay. I, mean, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, Mondrian, Titian, um, uh, you know, I mean, I could name some other, you know, name a century. Um, but those, I, those I don't are, find those her... Those yeah. are the reasons that Bob Hughes didn't like anybody because they couldn't do Titian. Well, no, it's not, I'm not saying that. She, I'm saying she should do herself, but she should do herself well. And, um, you know, that's what I ask of an artist. I don't find that she's actually engaged with the tradition of painting in any way whatsoever. I think she's using it as a ploy. She's adopting it um, and not engaged with it. But, you, you know, know earlier you... Earlier it's like you she says in there, the, in, the, in the press release, she says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm going against the bad boy now, you know, the Abex painters, the, you know, it's a, it's a stance. It's not an engagement with an art form. It's the mm -hmm. stance against painting. Um, that has that has political overtones, but it's not painting. I mean, well, to me, sure. it's not. The, the uh, have political overtones is nothing yeah. against it. Um, it's a stance, and I, as a painter, you know, understand what the stance is. Again, I hesitate to do, do detailed readings of things I haven't looked at in a long time. But I've seen other works of this ilk, which I don't find, you know, in any way threaten my appreciation of painting. I do feel as an as an interesting challenge to what is what makes a good painting. And making a bad painting is not as easy as it looks. <laughs> oh, I've made some bad paintings in my day. Yes. No, um, no, I've made some bad paintings in my... I mean, I was a painter. I mean, but I... But also, Lance, yeah. with respect, uh, 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 in relation to Molly Lowe, you, 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 you correctly defined uh, sentimentality as, uh, as emotion that's not earned. Um, good painting it, it can be uh, an emotion that's not earned. I mean, the good painting constantly has to be disrupted. Uh, a, a received sense of what good painting is constantly has to be disrupted in order for uh, the language to grow, to, to move forward. I disagree with that statement. Uh, I think that... Um, Otherwise, you are trading an academic... That's the, the well, epitome you're of saying that, acad that it has to be academic or it has to be a disruption, or a, a revolution? I don't think so. Not I think, that, I think that, that all great painting comes out of an engagement with the tradition and in the time that mm. that painter is working and then expands on that tradition, makes it very personal, very much about what he or she believes in and how that tradition is engaged with, and then reinvents it for him or herself 
and puts it out there in a way that we haven't seen before. That's the revolution. It's personal, it's, and it may change things, you know? Who, who do Cubism you see changed done things. Giotto changed things, you know? Okay. But Giotto, Tishner, who have you seen who's done this recently? Well, I think um, I would say um, Joan Snyder is somebody who's done it in my book. Okay, I would say Ellsworth Kelly is somebody who's done it. Um, uh, Balthus is somebody who's done it. Uh, just to name, you know, but what about some big very contemporary painters? Because I actually think well, that the I way think that of Joan Snyder is a very contemporary painter. She's alive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I guess I'm thinking of the younger generation of painters. I can say, I can say, ladies and gentlemen, make sure House you pick up a card for the next too. panel when you leave, yeah. and you're going to burst out laughing. Okay. I actually think that the way that she's using the medium is very much indicative of the contemporary situation. I think there's a sense of, you know, how we kind of throw words around, how things can be deleted, erased, how quickly we consume images is very much what she's channeling in the way that she's actually going about her use of the medium that I think does make these success, some of them successful paintings, hmm. not all of them. There are a thousand of them. If you, you know, we use the artist rule, get one good piece for every 30, then that's about how many are very successful in the exhibition. But there are absolutely certain paintings, I think, where um, the substrate and the way that she's working with the overlay of text are absolutely simpatico. And they're good enough in reproduction that I'm genuinely sorry not to have seen them because I would have liked to have seen that, mm -hmm. you know, that That is the ultimate income, yes. Yeah. That's, that's a new gold standard. Good enough in reproduction that I'm I'm regret not having seen them in person. <laughs> that that is uh, <laughs> I'm going to borrow that line. I think, or we we should just set it up as the store rule. Yes, <laughs> fantastic. Believe me, there's a lot of work that doesn't even make that great. So, I think it would be a good moment. I think it's definitely a good moment to bring in our audience. And uh, 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 yep, there we are. Hands are shooting up. Either show, welcome, comments are welcome. Comments are better than questions. Yes, I loved the show. And when I walked in at the beginning and I saw all the writing, I thought, oh my God, I have to read all of this. But what happened was it became an installation for me. And when I was standing there looking around, I totally agree. I think that if you're a woman and you're standing in that gallery and you're surrounded by all of these slogans, you can't help but feel, oh my God, I am filled with this shit. This is all inside of me. And that's what, you're, you're standing there, you're overwhelmed with the fact that you have all of this in you, you've had it all your life, your mother has had it all her life, we're walking around with it every day, the words are bouncing around in our head, and it's what, it's what holds us, it's what you know, creates us, it's what, it's what, you know, it's very powerful, I thought. Thank you. Uh, reminded me of Donald Trump. I thought it was a pandering ploy for attention. Probably marketable. You could sell those little things, and a lot of people would have them. But as a feminist, it made me furious. I thought it was, uh, well, do they ever do it for men? Do they ever have, you know, like cock, all the different words, maybe? you know, flaccid, I don't know. Uh, uh, Impotent, yeah. Flaccid painting, yeah. And it was so, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, uh, David, but I thought it was British to be so verbal. You know, it's like... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 
boring and was my main thing. Thanks. British and boring. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> no text, please. We're British. Okay. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> um, hard to follow that one, but I'm sure there are some, there's some more, and, <coughs> and particularly would welcome um, some response on Judith Braun as well. But uh, whoever you want to talk about is welcome. A hand at the back. Uh, I didn't see this show, but I just wanted to dovetail off of what Kara brought up. And I felt that the cavalier and wantonness of how the paintings were made echoed the cavalier and wantonness of how these phrases are thrown about in language. Oh, right. That's a very good point. I, yes. Never thought of that. That's, that's genius. The, everyone get that? hear that? The, the wantonness with which the artist throws these paintings, these little ill-considered paintings often into the, p into the world, it's, it's, it's echoing the, the casualness and the carelessness with which we, um, we some people, uh, bandy about um, misogynist uh, language and phraseology. Cool. Right. Um, anyone bursting to say what? Yes? Comment? Yeah. I wait for the mic though, uh, Michael, because otherwise... Uh, your name's Mike, so you've got to have a mic. There you are. Thank you. Um, I just was reminded of the show in 2002 in uh, Soho about uh, her paintings, and I wasn't aware of her at all when I walked into Mitchell August. I, I think it was at 65. Uh, I can't remember. It was the address was 65. It was in... Uh, yes, we don't need. The paintings, we've got an number. But I it was say. like, it was yes. not about the paintings. It was about the response I had to that really basic, um, fundamental uh, emotion of fucking, basically. She got fucking down really well. And it was shocking to me that... Um, I didn't respond to the painting at all. I responded to that. I was actually thrown off balance by her ability to express that raw emotion. And so I didn't think about her as a painter. I thought her, thought, I mean, I think that's the same thing that's happening with the little paintings as well. You don't think about her as a painting. You think her, about her as a um, conveyor of emotion, a conveyor of sensation without being sensational. Uh, she was a very powerful person, and I wouldn't try to put her in context with what she is. It's like what she does that's so amazing. That's sort of what I had to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. The transparency. There's a, there's a yes, a few, few more hands going up. Let's, that's behind you, uh, Joel. There was. Yes, there she is. This, uh, you know, I didn't feel like these particular, the small paintings should be judged uh, like individually. I think they, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of magnetic poetry where you can, um, it's all about the play of language. And so to throw all these uh, words, it almost made it as, you know, giving it back to um, uh, the individual to be able to play with it as they pleased. And it felt like the colors, the way they, bounced off each other, the words also bounced off each other in the same way. So I think it was much more playful than Playful in the installation of these fridge magnet multiplicity of uh, text pieces. Great. Uh, yes, yes. 
Um, commenting on the Judith Bronze work. Please, that's great. Collectively. Um, it seemed that the, uh, the panel missed what seems like a humor in her work and a um, sort of stubborn protest within that humor with, re with respect to the demands placed on women to please others that came through. Um, observation, comment. Thank you very much, cool. Um, and yeah, yes. Um, you talked uh, about the last show uh, all about how it was made and how it looked, but um, I noticed that neither one of you said anything about your emotional reaction to what she was actually um, saying. Did any of you have any like reaction? Uh, Did you? Did you? Um, I didn't see the show, but just seeing but it here. From seeing it here? Absolutely. Um, I'm having a very strong emotional reaction to um, to the words, like one of the other ladies said, that these are the words we live with, we hear, we internalize. Um, did that strike any of you in any way? My reaction was go for it. I mean, I, I found it invigorating. And I thought anybody who was going to go there should go there. Oh, but um, Rob, I think there's two different things going on here. Because as, as Michael Norton was saying, when he went to see the paintings in uh, Mitchell August, he didn't see paintings, he saw sex. And what this lady is saying is that, um, uh, what was your emo emotional reaction? And you're saying, go no, for I'm it. You're I'm saying, I'm you're I'm saying I'm the artist should go for it. I, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about what I'm seeing in these reproductions of these works. I'm seeing something that I would like to see full steam ahead, and I think they probably were full steam ahead, so I find them invigorating rather than... Oh, but, but, but it's... Ah, so you're responding to the, the painter and her project. Yeah. And, and, and this and lady is responding to the um, linguistic content of these uh, paintings. That, that is part of the painting. You know, yeah. any, any painter who paints words is mm. both writing those words and, and making a, a painted object. Yeah, 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 yeah. Them. But the problem, Rob, is that you're, you're, you're communicating to Betty and you're telling her to go for it. And this woman is saying, no, I'm, I'm having an emotional reaction but that, that to is these. But that is my, I am cheering her on. That is my emotional reaction. I find these invigorating and I appreciate them and I would like her to do some more. Yeah, but you, you, you find them invigorating because she has the courage to take on uh, the misogyny in our culture. So it's not even just the courage. There's a kind of, you know, burst of energy in these things yes. that I can sense anyway. Yeah. And I think there's not enough energy out there in the world these days. And angry yeah. energy that is kind of, um, you know, you know, yeah, in, you know, letting it out is right. a good thing. Excellent. Great. I mean, I think when I when I first started talking about the show, I said what I felt was so interesting about it is that it really divides experience along these lines of gender. And as a woman, I. I I think I expressly conveyed the fact that I had a, a reaction walking into the space. I mean, in certain instances, it's like you're being punched in the gut. In other instances, it's an intellectual response. In other instances, it might be this more sentimental kind of revulsion that's actually there in terms of these pejorative terms that are assigned to one um, within the culture. So, you know, you have... 
it's not as though there's just one response to an exhibition of this scale, right? Because it's, it's almost like a thousand people shouting at you simultaneously, right? So there's going to be this, you know, this wave that you kind of ride as you walk through and encounter each of these works or try to encounter each of these works. But early on, I was, one of the women said that, you know, these are the words we walk around with, these are the words that my mother walked around with. So when you see somebody or watch somebody saying the unsayable and the unsaid, mm -hmm. That is emancipatory. That's invigorating. Yes. Mm -hmm. she, she's taking ownership of the oppression yeah. and turning it around into, into something fun and uh, empowering. Yeah. That's my take. Mine too. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't know if you have them. Oh, there's a guy here in the middle who's had his hand up all the time. We've, we've got reverse discrimination here. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that... Um, the, this, this, these two shows that we just uh, were talking about so long, for so long, they are really uh, very monumental in, in size, and um, we should, uh, when, I, when I remember when I first saw my first show, oh, Andy Warhol, in London in 1973, 74, I walked into a show and I felt like, what, what, why is this here? This should not be here. I felt very like, I rejected the, the paintings because they were so, so and the reason why I did that was because they were so advanced and sometimes the painters or the artist is very uh, advanced, much more advanced than we can, we can relate to. So rather than uh, criticize the work by whether it is a graphic work, or it, whether the paintings are bad or they've been done very fast. Uh, I think we should try to understand it more than, than actually uh, that yeah. it, it, it appears at first okay. sight. Our, our, our method of understanding is to critique it. Um, so that's, I think we're aiming at the same ultimate goal, even if we um, <coughs> approach it in a different way. But thank you very much indeed. You're thank welcome. you. Um, so what I would uh, entreat you to do, I don't see tons of cards on the floor, so I don't know. No, we've, we've, we've taken all our comments now. I don't, I don't see, uh, I don't know whether you all picked up a card, a flyer for the next panel. Were you given one? You have? Fantastic. Oh, yes, I see them. So wave them at me, and then I'll, uh, I'll be uh, convinced. Yes, okay. So we'll see you in May and uh, enjoy the rest of this balmy evening. And thank you to my panel. <laughs>